episode 490, The Unrelenting Pursuit of Excellence, Special Forces, World Records, and Royal Weddings with Dean Stott. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast, tracking down the finest alpha minds on the planet for you. I'm Adam Lewis Walker, host of the number one men's development podcast that is now a best-selling book, Awaken Your Alpha, Tales and Tactics to Thrive. And it is my mission to share you the real stories, the useful stuff, the juicy stuff, and the reality of what it takes to thrive. Do the little guy a favor, subscribe and review. It'll help get him off my back. If you've ever thought or dreamed or wondered what it would be like to do a TEDx talk, you can get this completely free 45 minute training masterclass on how to land your TEDx talk in 90 days or less without wasting your time on the wrong opportunities. That training is brand new for 2021. You can jump over there, talkaccelerator.com forward slash masterclass. That's talk X C E L E R A T O R.com. It really digs into the three key secrets to landing your own TEDx talk. Amplify your message and amplify your mission. All links mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes at ayalpha.com. Get to the podcast. Okay, enjoy the show. It's always about being relentless, but we've got Dean Stott on the line, former British Special Forces soldier who left the military after suffering a severe knee injury in a parachuting accident in 2011, double world record holder, and the Americans seem to mention this quite a bit. He's friends, he knows Harry, Prince Harry, I should say, and he's an author of the book Relentless. There's lots we can talk about. I mean, We've had to get the interview going because we've been talking away pre-interview and it's good stuff. So we're going to dive straight in. Dean, are you ready to awaken your alpha today? I am. Is there anything you'd like to add or highlight to that pretty brief bio I did? Yeah, I, I, I can't shake off my history. I, I was uh, in the military and in, in the special forces. But um, unfortunately, I, um, as you touched on it, I had a parachuting accident in 2011. I left, I left the military. Um, but... That sort of carved the person I am today, sort of rewinding back to the beginning. I was born into a military family myself. My father was in the military, my grandparents were in the military, and I grew up in a, a military town. Um, but it was never forced upon me to pursue the career myself. I was never put under pressure to continue that family tradition. But um, at 17, when I approached my father and told him my intentions of joining the military, he gave me those warm, comforting words that would last two minutes. Um, <laughs> probably not the response. Probably not the response I was expecting. But at nine and a half stone and five foot seven, uh, I could probably see where he was coming from. That's that, British motivational speaking for you, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hindsight, I don't know whether it is. It was, um, you know, it was. It was a good decision from him or reverse psychology. I don't know, but it gave me that fire in the belly to, you know, to prove him wrong. And my story throughout my sort of life has been similar to that. I think you can. Either argue with someone until you're blue in the face to try and prove a point, or you can actually go away, physically do it, and then come back to the table. Um, and so that's what I did with my father. I joined the military, and he was in the Royal Engineers, and I followed the same sort of path. But after four years, I, I joined at 17. At the age of 21, I was a para commando, a diver, and a, a PTI, which is a gym instructor. Yeah. I'd done every arduous course that you could do in the, um, in the Royal Engineers. And... So the, the only option for me then was UK Special Forces. And from the army, we would normally go transition, if you wanted to join, past selection, which is six months long, to the Special Air Service. But I'd spent 
uh, majority of my, all my career in free commando brigade. And I was also now the senior diving instructor. So the special boat service was the option I wanted to go for. And at this period, they just opened their doors to try service. So much to the disgust of my friends in the SAS, I went and applied for the special boat service. Again, met with a lot of um, negativity. You can't do that. Why are you doing that? And everything else. And just so the listeners are aware, the, the course is exactly the same. We do the course together, the SAS and the SPS. Okay. No, yeah. There's no difference between them. There was in, in years of past, but now it's joint. And yeah, I went on the course and six months later, I became one of the first army guys to pass for the special boat service. So again, I sort of went against the grain. And I think now 15% of the special boat service is army. Um, so it sort of opened up the doors for others to, uh, to follow suit. And I joined, I joined at a time at the height of the war and terror. Um, you know, we we're in Afghanistan, we we're in Iraq, we were rescuing hostages. Off I was going to say, so for yeah. someone who's thinking, okay, SAS, SBS, special boat service, obviously, yeah. what, not what is a typical day, but you're just kind of touching on what, what were the things you expected to do or what were some of the key, you know, key things you were doing in, in amongst all of, you know, when it's all going on? Well, because uh, of the time I, I joined, you had, you had Iraq going on at the time and we had Afghanistan going on. So literally, we would, we would be on a cycle. The SAS were in Iraq and the SPS, we were in Afghanistan. That was our, our theatre. So every, every 18 months, we'd be back out doing a six-month um, uh, tour of Afghanistan. And then when you're back in, in, in UK, you're on standby on hostage rescue for anything that's going on UK-wise. Um, and then the other role that we do is anything that's going on on global. So you're constantly on call, um, but you're always training. You're always you're relentless in the training. You know, one of the ethoses of special forces is the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. And you know, the reason we're the best special forces in the world it isn't because we've got the best caliber of, of guys or the best training. It's because we're always learning uh, from our mistakes and always always uh, evolving. So I joined at a time where it was so busy. It was probably the busiest time in UK Special Forces history at that, that period. And it was almost like what these boys and girls play Call of Duty. That was yeah. my lifestyle day in, day out. That was what we were living uh, and breathing. And for me, I was at the pinnacle of my career. Nothing could get, get better for me. And then I went, uh, we were on pre-deployment training to go back out to Afghanistan again. So it was two weeks just before the, uh, the tour. And I was out in Oman training. I was doing what's called a hey-ho jump, which is a high altitude, high opening jump. So you exit the aircraft at 15,000 feet and the parachute opens straight away and then you travel towards the uh, target area, but you can travel up to 30 minutes or 50 kilometers in the air um, to the target area. And as I exited the aircraft, my leg got caught up in the line above my head. So unlike free falling where you're clearer lines, we were still attached to the aircraft. So I was frantically trying to kick my leg out before the parachute opened. Could it be open? There was risk of my leg coming completely off. Oh man. I yeah, I couldn't clear it in time. And the parachute opened and it ripped my leg over my head and to my right. Instantaneously, I knew there was, I'd, I'd done some real damage. Um, but my first challenge was to actually land it. You know, I'd only just yeah. exited the aircraft. I still need to land it. And at 15,000 feet, at the limits of options, so I was drifting in and out of consciousness as well, as well as vomiting for the pain. But no oh. one else in the team was aware there was a situation. They all thought, you know, no one was aware until we landed. And 
as I approached the DZ, you know, I, I, I watched, I circled in the air to watch the approach of the other parachutists because if I got it wrong, I could almost do the similar damage to the good leg. Yeah. Uh, I landed it one-legged. Uh, it was a perfect landing. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, the damage sustained. Um, I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus within the knee, my hamstring, my calf, and my quad. So all the supporting muscles oh, as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, saw, I was with you for a bit when I did my knee. I had a lot of them things, but the, yeah. the, the quad, the quad, no, you, you went a few more ahead of me. Oh, my God. Yeah, so obviously, you know with your injury that... You, your, your knee is supported by those, uh, those muscles. But when those muscles are gone as well, that, that was it. So oh, well, this was 16 years from the time that I joined the military to now. So all I'd ever known was the military. Because of the, the, image, uh, the damage, I, I had to leave. And from a young boy in the 16 years, that was my lifestyle. My life was built around my physical stamina, my, my physical ability. I now couldn't even run uh, 100 meters. And I now had to find myself uh, entering the world of the civilian world, which is quite alien to us, actually. Um, you know, the military are very good. They're like your mother, your father. They clothe you, they feed you, they pay you on time. You know, I don't know what council tax band I was paying or who provides the heating. You know, I was just doing the job that I loved. Um, but I now then had to enter into the world of um, the civilian sector. Well, um don't want to assume, but that sounds like a, a tough time. And we usually talk about awakening moments when you have to, a, real, a really challenging time where you have to really like fight for, to awaken your alpha. And, you know, how, again, that sounds silly. How tough was that? Obviously, it's tough. But I mean, did you just kind of hit the ground and acknowledge this is tough and work through it? Or was there, a t you know, a really time when you're really struggling? Because can you think of a point what was the kind of the, the lowest of the low, as it were, when you kind of yeah. had to get out of it? At the time, I didn't know, but in reflection now, looking back, I was struggling. Um, I was, you know, when people, service leavers uh, leave, you know, I hear horror stories. Some, some transitions can be quite turbulent, and some quite smooth. Um, thankfully for me, my, me, mine was quite smooth because uh, my wife is very entrepreneurial. Um, you know, when I met her, she used to run the free Santander banks in Aberdeen. Um, last year, she was a finalist at Businesswoman of the Year Award for UK. You know, so for her, she set up my, my first security company on her BlackBerry watching EastEnders. You know, for me, <laughs> have, I, have I filled out the correct paperwork? But so that, those sort of issues were, weren't an, an issue at all. My wife yeah. sort of dealt with that. But for me, what I was suffering from was what's known as an identity crisis. I'd come from a, being in a tight-knit unit, being in a community, having a role, having a purpose, um, to now sort of finding myself all over and where do I now fit in society what is my new role and what is my new purpose yeah and I think a lot of so not just service leavers sports person you know sportsmen yeah, the identity was the biggest thing for me because everyone was you know I was like Adam the pole vaulter, and then I was like what the hell am I now and I built my whole life around that and then it was just like that's it and there's a lot of parallels between special forces and and sports uh, professional sports people because as you as you know you've spent your career building yourself up to be the best that you can be in that field and then all of a sudden an injury or retirement and you've like got to start all over again so so in reflection, I, w I was going through that. And as I mentioned, that it was my physical attributes that got me to where I was in the military. I sort of lost that whole identity. I couldn't even run. Um, mm. But to add to the pressure, my wife was eight months pregnant as well when I left the, the, the camp gates. So for me, my, my first, uh, my priority was to uh, look after my family. How was I going to fund my family, uh, you know, support my family? Is there work out there? And as I've 
mention just briefly, uh, the security industry is sort of the natural progression with people with my skill sets without sounding like Liam Neeson. Um, <laughs> that was nice. Little touch. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> just so for me, I didn't really have much time to prepare when I left the military. You know, some guys, when you know you've got two years to go, you, yep. you look at going on courses. So I knew I had those skill sets for the security industry. So luckily for me, within 48 hours, I got a phone call. And I was asked if I can go out to Libya. In two, this was May 2011, so it's the heart, uh, uh, heart of the Arab Spring was going on at this point. And um, Gaddafi was now in Tripoli. Uh, he was now surrounded. Um, all the security companies, oil and gas, media, were all forming up in Benghazi. So I was helped setting up a project with the British Embassy there. But within 48 hours the, uh, of actually being in Libya, chatting to the Libyans, they didn't want Libya being your next Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, they didn't want to, once Gaddafi had fallen, they wanted to take control of the country. They didn't want private security guys walking around with weapons. But I also then identified that some of these larger security companies, huge security companies, were charging six-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans um, for oil and gas and NGOs. But when I started scraping the surface, there actually wasn't anything in place at all. So I flew home after two weeks. My wife gave birth to our daughter, Molly, and I said, look, do you mind if I take what savings we have in the bank, I've got a, got a plan. I said, yeah, of course. So I flew back into Libya and I bought 30 weapons on the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and spent a month in the desert designing my own evacuation plans. Um, you know, I cased the weapons with money, with, uh, with comms kits. And I designed the evacuation plans from the sea, from the air and from the land. And wow. for me, it was once, you know, Libya had sorted itself out that we had weapons in positions. We didn't need them, but I knew, um, to ease my mind, where they were. So we could Talk drive about preparation, over. yeah. <laughs> and that's what I did. And I then sold my evacuation plan to a couple of the oil and gas companies here in, in uh, Aberdeen and hopefully never needed to use it. Um, I then did a lot of ad hoc work in the security industry. You know, I was out in the majority of places in Africa, Somalia, you know, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya. So I was really getting, every time I had a job, I was gaining new experiences, yeah. gaining contacts and, and things like that. But it wasn't all so bad as well. You know, we had London Olympics, we had the World Cup in Rio. I was going to say, so all this, you know, that experience, that's all post, you know, officially in the military and yeah. your knee, your knee accident and injury. Yeah, this is, this is all post, um, yeah. but I tend to work on, on my own. I like to work on my own because, um, you know, I very, I find it difficult to, have a standard and I need to maintain that standard and you know, yeah. reputation of the plant and, and everything else. So I really struggle when I have to obviously let someone else get involved. But the success of me in the security industry at that point was the fact that I was going into countries like Somalia and meeting clients face to face. And they see that you've taken the risk to go over there and see them. You've understood the atmospherics and actually what's going on on the ground yeah. and not what's being perceived on the TV. And they're getting emails daily from London and all these other um, New York, all these yeah. big security companies offering their services where you've taken that risk, sat down with them, yeah, shared bread uh, with them and their family. And, and that's where I was, I was gaining their sort of their sort I say, of it really sounds like kind of how, you know, smaller or individual entrepreneurs take on the big companies because, yeah. you know, celebrating the fact that you are, you know, an independent and you're just going in there and you're talking to them face to face, that kind of personal yeah. touch. It's awesome. And then in, um, in 2012, I'd just come back from the London Olympics. So I was in Benghazi and it was 
September 11, 2012, and your listeners will, will know this story, is when the American ambassador got killed in Benghazi. They made a film that, called that's, 13 yeah, Hours. The, yeah, I was going to say, when you said Benghazi, I was thinking of that movie. I was there that evening, and I was asked if I could help evacuate an oil company, a German oil company, from Benghazi back to Tripoli. This episode is sponsored by the Talk Accelerator. Increase your influence, income, and impact. Get this completely free training masterclass on how to become a TEDx speaker. And you can jump over Talk X C E L E R A T O R dot com forward slash masterclass. Really digs into the three key secrets to landing your own TEDx talk. So I took uh, eight German uh, oil engineers safely from Benghazi to Tripoli over three days through safe houses I had in the desert back to Tripoli. And because of the success of that, uh, two years later, I was out in, in um, Brazil covering the World Cup. And it was the Tripoli War, which is a civil war between the militias and the government, which is still well, ongoing. I, was say, I mean, just quickly, when you say like covering the World Cup, what were you doing at the World Cup? Because that sounds some cool stuff as well. Like what yeah, was so, that, was that individuals well, or high net worth clients who just wanted some protection or? Yeah, so it was that actually one of the main sponsors, which was Visa. So they had some high net worth clients coming in. So that was, that was corporate close protection. So the, the, the security industry uh, ranges from, you know, your hostile countries and then, and then your corporate. And I managed to find the balance uh, of both, being able to, you know, wear a suit in, in five-star hotels around the world on private jets. But then the following week, you know, being in the deserts and, you know, getting my hands dirty and I, I love that balance and I, yeah. I used to love every time I got a phone call because each job was different each job was talk about I say it sounds like it keeps you sharp as, a, as, a, as I imagine it a kind of a potential pitfall if you do just spend your time in suits and there yeah. was no kind of the other side of stuff for a long many years you I don't know it, it might be harder to stay sharp I don't know <laughs> no 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 I know, I know I know you're true you need to stay stay focused and um, but yeah because of the success of that I, it was the Tripoli War, which is a civil war between the militias and government, which is still ongoing actually at the moment. And I got a phone call that the Canadian embassy was stuck in, in Tripoli. All the other embassies had shut shop, they're gone. The Americans, the Brits, the Italians wow. had already gone. So I, I flew back in um, from, from Brazil via UK into Brazil and I single-handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy, 18 military and four diplomats safely from Libya to Tunis. It sounds very sexy and it sounds very Hollywood, but... Um, Especially actually, added to the fact we're like, I like to work alone. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very hot, that's, that's always the leading man in some of these films, yeah. says that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm the only Westerner within the team. I, I, it's, it's knowing the right fixes um, yeah. in, in the right regions. And um, <clears throat> I've never needed to dig my, uh, my caches up. They've all remained in, in situ. The, you know, I've touched on it uh, before we, we jumped on this call, you know, the UK Special Forces are, um, and everyone has this perception that we're, you know, offensive action and, you know, blowing walls and, you know, kicking in doors and, you know, killing everyone in the building. You know, that isn't us. You know, that's 25% of what we do. And that's, you know, that's uh, last case. That's the last resort. 50% of what we do and what we're good at is it's called um, support and influence. It's hearts and minds. Yeah. It's going into these countries and understanding the demographics, the politics, the tribal influences, understanding actually what's going on, the history of the country as well. And that's why I, that was a success of this. I just, the week before the Canadians were taken out, the British Embassy got shot at every checkpoint between Tripoli and the, and the border, which is only 100 kilometers. Yeah. Um, so that sort of was worrying them. So I went out with my fixer and I spoke 
spoke to the tribal elders, not the people on the gates with the guns, the tribal elders who, yeah. who run the shop behind the scenes. And it was actually all about communication, just letting them know what we were doing, why we were doing it, when we were doing it. And, and that was it. It was just a bit of respect and communication. And that was the success of it. Rather than having this image of, you know, eight guys carrying weapons with tattoos yeah. around, you know, bullying their way through, you can't do that because you're a guest in their country. Yeah. It's showing respect. And that's, that was where I sort of differed from a lot of the other security companies, uh, was understanding uh, and being more showing some empathy and respect. Yeah, wow. I mean, huge life, life lesson there for anyone listening in terms of your approach to that, definitely. You, all these situations, they sound pretty dangerous in some, or potentially very dangerous, and then you've kind of, you've handled it. Well, when you've got your kind of your leg ripped off, off not ripped off, but in the parachute, how random is that accident? Do they have many injuries in that scenario? Was that just where they say, oh, that's a completely random thing very unlucky or what we played the video back because thankfully all the video most majority of the jumps training wise are, are recorded yeah and you know if i did that jump a thousand times you know i'd be lucky to get it in that position it was just a freak accident it was just unlucky um all these scenarios you get yourself into obviously i you've got to go into some pretty dangerous environments and some situations that definitely could turn it sounds like a lot of them worked out quite nicely but i mean has there been a scenario you have feared for like, oh, this hasn't gone so well. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get out of this. And I'm always interested in people in your position as well, your relationship to fear and how that does that, does that change in certain situations? And I'm just always curious to talk about that side of things. No, I, 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 everyone has fear. When you see these sort of celebrities or, or these military media on, on TV and I have no fear, that's rubbish. Everyone has fear. It's how you manage to deal with your physical coping mechanism. But for, for me, and you know, we talk about with the bike ride, surely, you know, what we're very good at in the military is, is detailed planning, mm. is, having, is having a detailed plan. And when you have a plan, and when you have a secondary plan, you have a tertiary plan. So because I knew the plan inside out, and I knew the alternative option, there, there's certain scenarios that are out of your control, and you'll be able to react to it. So for me, I, I didn't put myself in any sort of position that I was fearful because if I was put myself in that position, it was the wrong decision to do it. If it's me on my own, you know, it's only you. But when you've got 22 people looking at you for, for advice, you know, yeah. I wouldn't put their lives at risk uh, either. So, um, you know, it's a strange industry, the security industry. You've gone from being potentially, as people say, you know, one of the bravest in the world to actually being the biggest coward, you know, because a good security operator is be able to identify potential hazards, potential threats and bypass them. Mm. You know, I, I hear and I see some of these blogs and stories about guys in, in Iraq and some of these countries and, oh yeah, we got into a firefight and things like that. Well, that's poor security because you're not, you know, you've not identified the threat or, or everything else. So, so that's the, the, the time in the special forces to the private school is very different. It's very different. You don't, go towards danger you basically avoid uh, whatever yeah. danger because for me i yes i can i'm comfortable in those situations but your clients aren't and you need to sort of respect that as well and they're always looking for you and 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 fear you know we talk about positivity and negativity that's contagious but so is fear as well so if they see fear in you then that's contagious as well so you always need to be on your on your top game and, and being confident in your plan yeah so now moving forward, like you, we've mentioned in, very briefly in the introduction, double world record holder, cycling comes into this. Um, yeah. As I say, we, we, 
I don't know how much we touched in the actual interview, but you know, you, you trained and did some similar training. You were very good friends to Prince Harry. I think you went to his wedding. So it's not like one of these people say, yeah, I know him and you kind of don't, but <laughs> you went yeah, to his yeah, wedding. Yeah. So you must know you a little bit. And um, then you'll look at your plans to move to America like myself. You're going yeah. to California though, by sounds of it. So you, talk to us about the, it sounds like you've kind of established yourself. You've got, you know, you've got the variation of the, the different type of security work. You've, you've built yourself up. Why a book? Why the world records? How did they fit into the, like, into in terms of... Yeah, so I sort of had to tell that story to then prime you for the bike ride because um, I, I came back from that, um, that Canadian embassy job and my normal sort of standard operational procedure when I got home was to, to you know, wash my clothes, repack my bag, ready for the next phone call. And my wife uh, was doing that and um, one of my shirts was covered in blood, it was soaked in blood. Because I was, I was administering first aid for an, uh, a road traffic accident at the border of Tunis. And so I said to my wife, oh, can we get the blood out of this? Because, yeah, we can, but I'm more concerned in why there's blood in there. So yeah. I, I <laughs> told her what I'd just done. And she sort of said, highlighted to me that I'd only been home 21 days in a 365-day calendar. I was wow. literally chasing everything. Um, and this was when the pin dropped for me. I... I hadn't come to terms with the fact that I'd left the special forces. I was trying to match that adrenaline rush that I had when I was still in without actually coming to terms with the fact that you're no longer in there. You know, yeah. if something went wrong. You created your own special forces. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it seems like. If something went wrong, your friends aren't going to come parachuting out of the sky with helicopters and, and planes rescuing you. You're, you're on your own. And I totally disconnected from what was, was normal. I, it was almost a throwaway comment that I'd evacuated an embassy. My wife said, that isn't normal. Um, so we sat, down that, we sat down that evening, drank two bottles of wine, and really opened up. There was a few tears that evening. I hadn't addressed, my father had died that year. You know, there's a lot of things that was coming out. And my wife's a property developer. And she said, well, look, you don't need to be doing this. You know, why don't you stay at home, you know, come work with me? So I thought, perfect. So this was five years now in the yeah. security industry. During that period, I'd neglected my own physical and mental well-being. I'd been so fixated on, on the security work. And my injured leg was now two kilos lighter than my good leg because of the muscle wastage. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I just bought a push bike off Amazon. And I thought, well, I'll just cycle to and from the office. But straight away, just being active again on the bike, it wasn't much, just eight miles. I felt a lot better. I felt like it was a big um, uh, relief uh, yeah. weight off my shoulders. So, but you can imagine my backstory sat in these architects and planners meetings. I wasn't really interested in, the, in your drawings or your heating systems or your plumbing systems. It was more the coffee and the biscuits. And uh, my wife could see that glaze and she said, you need to do something, you know, to keep yourself physically and mentally engaged. Oh man, yeah, I, I get this. this is, my wife's like, what, why, why do you want to like do the same for me for these different challenges? My, my latest one, I want to paddleboard up, um, up on the Great Lakes straight up to Canada. And it's, oh, really? it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's, I really relate to some of the things you're saying here. Oh, yeah, you, you've got to. You've got to keep yourself busy. And, and so um, I said, well, I always, it was about a month before my 40th birthday. And I said, well, I've always fancied doing a world record. She said, well, what in? I said, well, well, cycling doesn't seem to be hampering my knee. Maybe cycling. So I was thinking, you know, maybe, you know, Land's End John O'Groats or something in, in UK or Aberdeen to Dundee. And my wife then found the world's longest motorable road, which is the Pan-American Highway, which runs from the southern point of Argentina to northern Alaska, which is 14,000 miles or 22,000 kilometers. So I thought, yeah. perfect. Yeah, let's do that one. So 
having only cycled 20 miles, I applied for the world record uh, to Guinness. And six weeks later, they said, yes, you've been successful on your application. So I now had the challenge. Yeah. Um, for me, I needed to do it motivation-wise for myself was aiming for the world record. But also another motivation, we do a lot of stuff for, for charity. And as you've touched on, Harry and I are good friends. So he does a lot of stuff with military charities. I do stuff with military charities. And I, I rang him up and I said, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to next year, I'm cycling the world's longest road. What campaign do you think we should do it for? So your listeners may not know this, but in UK, uh, there's a big campaign for mental health called Heads Together, yeah. which uh, William, Harry and Kate initially set up in 2017. This was 2016, him and I had this conversation. And he said, we've got a campaign called Heads Together. Um, he talked about mental health. And I was aware about mental health within the military, but I wasn't aware about how big an issue it was for the whole of society. And mm. um, so I thought, perfect, well, let's do it for that. And so now we had the campaign and we now had the bike ride. So uh, I set a target of a million pounds, trying to raise a million pounds for mental health. And my sort of message as well for this was trying to promote physical activity, was helping your, your mental state. Yeah. I didn't really have a plan. I was doing it because my friend had told me to. Um, and that's what I did. I just trained for a year. Um, I, I, you know, I, um, I, I wasn't a cyclist. I just looked, I knew that, I had the endurance of my time in the special forces, but what I, I approached it as a military operation. I just put a military set of orders on it and just crossed out ammunition and just did all the meticulous planning uh, that, that went into it. And then got a, a training coach to, um, to, to come train me. But I, having only cycled three weeks, I decided to go do Land's End John O'Groats, which is, uh, for your listeners, is a, yeah. one end of Scotland to the southern point of- How long uh, did that take you? Well, I, I just found it in a magazine. It was nine days. I said, like, oh, let's do it in nine days. But I did it in the middle of November. And everyone's saying to me, you've only been yeah. cycling three weeks. Don't know about cadence. Uh, you're not bike fit. And I thought it was bike fitness. It's actually your measurements of your bike. I did it all completely wrong. But for me, it was a, it was a, it was a training ride because yeah. Harry had asked if I would uh, cycle in, in May with some of the members of the Invictus Games. So I wanted to recce the route before we did that. Yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, I... I we had Storm Angus for the first two days. I fractured my scaphoid. On I was going to say, how savage was that? Just that, that, I, that. It was, it was the hard, one of the hardest bike rides. We got Scotland, it was minus 16. It was the coldest it had been in like 10 years. We did it all completely wrong. But for me, mentally, the Pan American Highway is, um, is 15 on a road back to back. If I couldn't do one, how was I going to do 15? And that was yeah. my sort of approach to it. Uh, but then six months later, after I'd been cycling a bit longer and had a coach, I did it reverse. And yeah, it was a, again, it was a training ride, a nine-day training ride. And it sounds arrogant. I don't mean it to sound arrogant as well, because I understand it's, it's on a lot of people's yeah. buckets, uh, this, but it had to be... Uh, yeah, in the bigger scale of what you're trying to do. And that, that first time sounds, made me think of a quote where it's they, was it cry on the, in the dojo, laugh on the battlefield. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how was the, uh, how tough was the... The full world record, I think, it's 48 days. It says I've seen it. It's 48 days to do that, South America. It's South America, yeah. And so the world record for the Pan American Highway was 117 days when I when I applied for it, uh, yeah. and I was aiming for 110. It wasn't because I wanted to smash it by a week. When I'd sort of sat down and done my planning, I could, you know, I sort of looked at all the potential scenarios that we had, and you know, we could have contingency plans if need be, but. Yeah. Those things that are out of your control, be it uh, natural disasters, coups, uh, third party influence. So if we encountered that, 
it was eating into that one week and not eating into the record. So I was always aiming for the 110 yeah. days. Um, I spoke to all the previous record holders and they all started in North in Alaska and finished in the South. Oh. All their issues were in South America and Central America, bit bureaucracy at the borders, languages, spares for the bikes, the hottest deserts, the highest yeah. mountains. So I thought from a military perspective, why take a gamble with the second half of the campaign? Why not address those issues early, get them out of the way? Then when I get into North America, we can readjust the mileage as well. So that's what I did. And that's something I'm quite proud of is the yeah. fact that just because everyone else did it that way didn't mean it was right. And I just turned, flipped it on its head. And, um, and it, sounds, it sounds like it ties in a lot to what you're speak, speaking about in terms of, you know, not having a firefight just for the sake of it, but seeing how can you avoid it and just, yeah, and just approaching it and doing, you yeah, know, just approach it, just planning. It. But what we, uh, you know, I talked about, again, about our special forces. The reason, you know, we're one of the best is that, you know, every time we came off the ground, before we go service our weapons or get ourselves sorted, we used to have a, what's known as a hot debrief. And the three main questions are what worked, what didn't work, and if you were going to do it again, what would you do differently? And that's why I asked, I just posed those three questions to the previous record holders, and that's how I formulated my plan. I was like, well, and, and it was just three simple questions, and then I did that. So, yeah, so that's why I decided to go from, from south. And I see as well, I mean, you got, it in, you got it in 99 days, 12 hours, 56 minutes. Towards the end, how much were you gunning to try and get under that 100? Because that well, it wasn't the original. It wasn't the original plan. I, I when you got close to it, though, we I can imagine someone like you was like, "Oh, get we maybe under the hundred. Yeah, well, I took the South America world record in forty-eight days, so I'd already taken ten days off that world record, and then I got to North America on day seventy, um, uh, down in in Texas, and I just thought uh, Del Rio is where I crossed it. Yeah, and I just thought, perfect. I'm fourteen days ahead of the target. I can I can take a day or two off. And Alana, kept, my wife kept ringing me. My, Alana was the campaign director. She kept keeping all the distractions away from me. And I had five missed calls. So I thought there was a problem with my children. Yeah. So I, I rang her up and I said, are you okay? She goes, yeah. She goes, we've been invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding. I was like, oh, right. Um, she goes, you need to be finished by day 102, which is 15 days ahead of the world record. So <laughs> going into the phone call, I was 14 days ahead. 10 minutes later, I'm now a day behind. So... Yeah, we talk about planning, wow. the best plan in the world. And then all of a sudden, all those efforts have been taken from me. But talk about necessity as well. And like having a, you know, a strong why. I want to get yeah. to the wedding. This is yeah, awesome. Yeah. Royal wedding. That's awesome. So I then got to Lubbock in Texas the next day. And then we had 60 mile an hour and, and tornadoes. So I was stranded for 24 hours. So I'm now two days behind. But there's an app on your phone called Windy TV, which gives you the strength and directions of the winds forecasted for two weeks every hour. So I just put pen to paper and I planned my route for America and majority of my cycling was done at night. Thankfully for North America and Canada, it's a lot safer than South and Central America. So I, I had that luxury and that's what I did. I just played chess with mother nature through North America. I got to Cheyenne in Wyoming and picked up a beautiful tailwind that did 260 miles in 11 hours. And I had 17 days originally planned for North America. I cycled in 11 and a half days from Texas all the way up to, to the Canadian border. And then they got to a town called Whitehorse and I thought, perfect. Uh, it was about a week outside from the end. And I thought, the world record's smashed unless I get eaten by a grizzly. Uh, I'm going to the Royal Wedding and um, take my foot off the gas. Um, what I didn't mention at the beginning was when I, my sponsorship marketing team did a SWOT analysis, your strengths, your weaknesses, opportunities, offense of the whole campaign. The only weakness that came back was my arrogance towards the cycling community, which I took as a strength. <laughs> and um, 
So it, 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 it turned out that uh, my friend rang me and he said, this, this gentleman, he's, he's a professional cyclist. He's got three other endurance wheel records sponsored by Red Bull, Austrian triathlon team. He's come out on social media today and said that he's going to cycle the Pan American Highway in August and be the first man to do it under 100 days. So for me, I couldn't let that happen. I then had to just keep pushing harder. So every time I started hitting the goals, the goals kept moving. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, I was in a position that I could act on it. And um, so for the last 30 hours, I cycled for 22 hours in minus 18 to get to the, to the Arctic, uh, to the Arctic yeah. Ocean in, in Prudhoe Bay. So it well, wasn't the original wow. plan. It's just how it... And I can see why I can see why your book is called Relentless now. I think <laughs> I don't think we need any explanations now. Yeah. And we're going to start to wrap this up with the alpha round because I'm aware of time as well. Um, no I usually like to start off. Is there a particular all-time favorite quote that maybe uh, that really sums up your approach to life? Yeah, there's something I, I, I was an instructor on the commando course, and um, I used to tell my students, and I still tell people now that anticipation is worse than participation. A lot of people think about things or overthink things and talk themselves out of projects, talk themselves out of challenges. And actually, when they've addressed it and done it, they then look back and think it actually wasn't that bad. So, yeah, anticipation is worse than participation is what I'd say. Awesome. And outside of your own book, A Relentless, which I'm definitely going to recommend, is there a particular impactful book for you? Is just you read the right thing at the right time? Is there any anything that, or just an all-time favorite book? Anything springs to yeah, mind? Yeah, I'm not really a book person. I have to admit, I'm not a book person. I've probably read two books. One's my own when I did it on the audio. Um, and I, I always remember being on uh, operations in Kosovo, and we were on the Serbian border, and it was in a tent and um, in, a, in a, wasn't a, an OP. So my my friend was reading the book, so I had loads of time to kill, and I, it was called The Longest Walk, and it's a true story about um, Polish officers who got arrested during the Second World War, and all officers were, were classed as spies, and then the Russians then put them on a train out to uh, Siberia, and then they walked over a thousand miles north, and the majority of the prisoners died along the way, yeah. and they had to build their own prison camp. They built their own prison camp uh, up there in Siberia. But the gentleman, uh, Vladimir Ravitch, I think his name is, he, because he spoke good English, befriended the commanding officer and was stealing things from the house and everything else. And he, him and two others escaped from the prison. But rather than going uh, to the east, to the nearest country, they retraced their steps. They walked all the way back down the way they came to the Himalayas and over into India, you know, a few thousand miles. It's a true story, yeah. It's the longest wow. walk. Sounds yeah. epic. And having gone through the bulk of the interview now, and I know you came off a hot recommendation, who from your network, and obviously you've got the obvious big name, I don't know if you're doing podcasts, but who would be a great interview for the Awakening Alpha podcast? Is there anyone who springs to mind? Um, a good friend of mine, actually, Nims, he's just, uh, he's, he served with me in, in Free Commander Brigade and then also was Army and then went to the SBS. He's just become the, he just summited the 14 highest mountains in the world in, in eight months, taking five years off the previous world record. But like myself, Nims, um, he's a Gurkha, so he's from Nepal, but he yeah. only got into mountaineering about a few years ago. He, something that he's, he's new into. So he's a, he's a great one to look out for. Awesome. And if people want to continue the conversation, because our time has just flown, but what's the best way to connect with you and find out more? So uh, follow me on, uh, on social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and Twitter. Um, I've also got a website, uh, www.deanstock.com. Uh, my USP 
is I take a sport I've never done before. So I've enjoyed cycling. Yeah. Uh, I'm now going to be arrogant towards the kayaking community. I'm kayaking from source to sea, the River Nile. So just taking the same concept uh, from my previous challenge. Quality. Well, again, I can't wait to have you over in the States when this all settles down. We're in the corona lockdown at the moment as this is being recorded. But thank you so much for your time today. No, Adam, absolute pleasure. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast. Tracking down the finest alpha minds on the planet for you. This episode is sponsored by the Talk Accelerator. Increase your influence, income and impact. If you've ever thought or dreamed or wondered what it would be like to do a TEDx talk, you can do that. So head over to talkxcelerator.com forward slash masterclass and you can get this completely free training masterclass on how to become a TEDx speaker and thought leader without desperately chasing and wasting your time on the wrong opportunities. It really digs into the three key secrets to landing your own TEDx talk. All right, have a great week. Amplify your message and amplify your mission. Do the little guy a favor. Subscribe and review. It'll help get him off my back.